Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. ministers and elders, we believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today we invite you to join us for a Christian discussion on understanding the development of technology. In particular, we discuss the greatest technological tool of our time, the internet. How should Christians approach the internet? What are the advantages and dangers? We want to help you navigate the digital world in a way that glorifies God and promotes the good of your soul. Welcome to the conversation. Well, all the guys are here this week. I'm Kyle Wisdom, the youth director here at Lake Ridge. And we've got Van Minter, lead pastor of Community Life, who is just back from vacation. How was it, Van? It was awesome, man. We were in Cancun, and I got a little tan while we were out there and had awesome food. So I thought your teeth looked whiter. Yeah. You don't look any better. (laughs) I feel better, though. (laughs) We also have Ben Lowry, lead pastor of Ministry Development. Now, Ben, what did you think of Van's vacation? I thought it wasn't nearly long enough. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm happy to go back. <laughs> and then we've got Keith Lowry, an elder and premier professional in the world of information technology and digital systems. He's also most likely created his own army of killer robots. Can you confirm or deny that reality, Keith? No comment on the killer robot effort. <laughs> well, uh, one spoon-bending digital ninja invited us to see just how deep the rabbit hole goes, which is why today we're discussing technology and most specifically the internet. Now, for many of us, uh, myself probably especially as the millennial in the room, the internet is universal. It's the stream we swim in. It's the air we breathe, which kind of makes it hard for us sometimes to identify just how much it's affecting our lives. Um, So I want to go back a bit to a guy who had no idea what the internet was. His name is Marshall McLuhan. He was a Canadian philosopher, and his view on technology was summarized this way. We shape our tools, and thereafter, they shape us. What do you think McLuhan was trying to tell us about our technology? Well, he's telling us um, more than just about what we would think of as technology today. I mean, today technology to us is things with screens or buttons. Um, But in McLuhan's world, even tools like a hammer or a wrench would technically be classified as a technology, as a media, a form of media. And by that, I think he means merely the extension of man's reach. So anything that extends or enhances man's ability to do a thing. So like a hammer extends or enhances man's ability to drive a nail. Without a hammer, it would be a lot harder to drive a nail, say, with your fist. Um, Well, harder for some of us. Uh, (laughs) So I think what he really means is and what we've seen, what he couldn't have possibly foreseen, is that when we use tools, um, our brains actually have the ability to adjust, um, and they, they, they even perceive the tool as an extension of the person's body itself. So a carpenter, a carpenter's mind begins, when he's really skilled, can actually begin to work with the tools in his hands as though the tools were part of his body. And we can see this, we can see a carpenter's brain fire that way. Um, when I'm like when I'm using my hands to tap on my leg or something, a carpenter uses a hammer or a chisel or a mallet to work on some piece of wood. Uh, 
his brain believes the hammer is part of his body in the same way that my hands, that my brain sees my hands as part of my body. So anyway, th- there's, there's a, the tool, we shape our tools, but then afterward our tools actually shape us. And what we've seen with the internet and digital technology is that it's actually reshaping the gray matter in our skulls, our brains. Uh, we're using our tools, but our tools, the technology we use in the internet is actually reshaping us. Yeah, I kind of see the danger in that. You know, when Paul in Romans 1 talks about people choosing not to acknowledge God, instead they chose to worship things made by their own hands, these idols. And so that uh, quote that you shared or the question you asked was um, the very things that we make with our hands become the things we start worshiping even, and they influence. We, we rely on man-made things to tell us how we ought to feel and how we ought to think. Um, and so I see that being the, the dark side of some of the stuff that we're... Uh, yeah, I think the very first high-tech startup that we know about was the Tower of Babel. And I think part of the problem, only part, but part of the problem there was that they were constructing it. The Bible says, unto themselves, or for their own glory, is another way to say it, as a, as a monument to themselves. And um, I think this is, to Van's point, the problem with almost anything we create is we have a propensity to make it a monument to ourselves. I, I think McLuhan was also saying um, that once a tool is created, you stop. It becomes very hard to conceive of your life outside of that tool's context. So once something is in the world, then you only think about your life in the context of access and use and utility of that thing, whatever it is. I mean, one way to view technology is before the iPhone and after the iPhone, or smartphones generally. And, you know, the iPhone came out, I think, in 2007. And then Samsung's, I think, came out in 2010. Yeah, so the influential effect on individuals before the iPhone, of technology on individuals before the iPhone, was tied to certain times and places. You had to be sitting at a computer and actively and intentionally engaging with it. After the iPhone, when people had round-the-clock, never-escaped connectivity, then all of a sudden you had a device in your pocket that could that could come to you and ping you and nudge you and that's a different thing that's a that's really a watershed shift that took place um you know even even long after people have been using really advanced technology i think the first ibm pc came off the line in 1981 that happens to be the year i wrote my first line of code and um and so everything that happened from then up until the iphone uh, emerged in 2007 was a different thing fundamentally than 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 post iPhone. Yeah. So, we, so when we uh, back in the day with the rotary phone, you're dialing at least seven numbers just to reach somebody. Today, it's Hey Siri, call this person for me. You know, yeah. and it's just I would make a lot fewer phone calls if I had to dial seven <laughs> numbers today. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. So we've kind of traced this development. You know, we kind of probably skipped some steps in between from yeah. the Tower of Babel to the internet to the smartphone. Um, and these uh, evolutions of technology, this growth is always happening around us. Um, and Christians have participated in that development of technology. 
um, whether it was you know the creations of pipe organs to elevate worship in uh, church services um, or any other type of technology we've sort of participated in creating how do we how do we maybe have a Christian instinct or a Christian skill of looking at a technology as you said once the technology is out there it's really difficult to look at the world without it so is there a way for Christians to maybe develop the skill of the instinct to see a technology that's being made or that's coming into being and say, this is good, this is bad? Do we have a, a bar to assess technology, I guess? I think someone needs to develop a chart of or like an algorithm of some kind so that we can measure things, <laughs> just plug a technology in and get something and, pumped out the other side, good or bad. <clears throat> Christians have, there's a really cool book actually called Worship and Technological Change. It's an interesting little book about the kinds of technological um, inventions that came about because of Christian worship. Like, for instance, here's just one example. Uh, the mechanical clock. So if you have a watch, a wristwatch on, not not the new digital wristwatches, although the keeping of time in general probably um, coincided with this somewhat, at least the way we do it today. But there were towns separated by a number of miles or whatever, and they would ring the church bells for the hours of prayer. But one one's town's bells would ring before or later than the other town's bells would ring. And so this became a problem because people would leave and go to the church while they weren't ready for the hours of prayer, and so everyone was confused. And so what they had to do was that someone sat down and created the mechanical clock so that we could synchronize the Christian hours of prayer. Um, and we have mechanical clocks to this day for that reason. So Christians, you're right, have been developing technology. We've seen, you know, really from the beginning, technology is not bad. Your question is how do we, how do we measure the goodness or the badness of it? Whether this is yeah. something we should keep or so to the clock illustration. Right. Um, a lot of people would argue that it's created a really awful expectation for the use of a day mm -hmm. so that now I don't get to perceive of my day. I've never known a world in which I had an afternoon. I have noon, one, two, two thirty, three, and uh, I think a poet said, uh, curse the man who divided up my day into endless minutes and seconds. Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of a negative side to even that Christian-made, uh, designed for worship technology. Yeah. Um, and so yes. how, do we, how do we assess that? How do we maybe look at that and know whether it's going to be helpful or whether it's going to be a harm. I think anything can be perverted. It's all in the user's hands how they choose to use it. I mean, you could take a shovel. <laughs> it's intended for digging without even getting into technology, and I could use it as a weapon, and then we could call shovels bad from then on out because I, I use it to hurt somebody. So I think it's all in the user's hands how they, they use it. Now, some things obviously can be created, I think, with ill intent, maybe serve no good purpose outside of it, what it was created to do. But uh, I think with a lot of things, it's learning to use things appropriately, um, and just remember who you're accountable to as you use these things. Van, did you use a shovel to hurt somebody? <laughs> I've been tempted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Christians have uh, at least a history of this. The Anabaptists and the Mennonites, they've they've seen fit to limit their use of certain technologies. They were able to say, hey, here's a technology that either does or does not contribute to um, communal flourishing, to individual flourishing. Uh, you know, that with regard to the question of the Internet, someone 
was arguing that in the beginning, and Dad, you were part of this in the beginning, so maybe you could speak to this, but in the beginning there were high hopes that the Internet and the ability to store mass amounts of information in servers around the world was going to contribute to a new, basically, we call what we called the information age, a brand new enlightenment, right? We were going to be able to look at all that we're going to be able to remember. But what we found is that it actually has contributed to um, mass culture of forgetfulness because now something else can remember things for us. And we don't have to... So even the learning process in a lot of students is abbreviated now because if, if you want to... If you want to find the answer, like I was talking to my 12-year-old son the other day, he was working on some homework, and he asked, Dad, can't I just Google this? Can't, because it, if, the, if the challenge is to get the answer right, then Google's your guy, right? But there's a, there's a host of things that he will learn in his pursuit of knowledge, scanning through pages of a book on his way to the answer that he'll never learn. So, so to your illustration of eventually the carpenter will perceive his world differently because he uses a hammer. It's amazing to me that you bring this up because I actually tell people this all the time. I don't need to remember it. It's on my phone. Like I don't need to remember this. If I put it down somewhere, that remembers it for me. Or even uh, the idea that we are trying to remember things and then store them somewhere else. That's a computer image of life. That's a computer image of ourselves as humans. The brain becomes sort of this processing center, and then the hard drive is somewhere else where we can store things. And so to your point, um, anytime we're using tools like that, it's going to change the way we perceive even ourselves um, and the way that we function to sort of mirror the technology itself. Do you think that's a problem? Well, I don't know. If we With have- the amount of time Scripture spends talking about remembering? Like and r- remembrance being part of a necessary element of faith? Do you think it's a problem that, you know, by and large churches, even Christian communities, are relying more heavily on some of these forms of technology? What impact do you think that will actually have on? Yeah, I mean, I I see your point on that. I mean, I think it's a healthy discipline and exercise. I don't know if we have to vilify everything that comes along as being, oh, because it makes it more helpful or easier to accomplish that it's a bad thing. You know, you look at the push more, remember those, they still sell them. I think at Lowe's, those little two wheel things with the blades, you know, if I say it's, it's wrong to get a gas mower because it makes it easier for me to cut my yard than just push that little two wheel thing. You know, is it, is it, is it wrong to think that an advancement in technology, I don't know if that's the best illustration to use is. So I think there are, um, there are things that we should internalize because our safety depends upon it. And then there are other things that, you know, I haven't memorized the encyclopedia, you know, back when they had encyclopedia. <laughs> I didn't memorize the encyclopedia, but there are moments of high risk in which what you know inside will make the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. Mm-hmm. And so I think internalizing, for example, the Word of God and not just saying, well, I'm going to Google it. Right. I, you see this exact thing in Jesus' exchange with Satan in the wilderness, where he had at his on his tongue and immediately on his lips a knowledge of how to interact and respond defensively based on what he had internalized. I, w- I was going to respond to something Ben said a while ago about being around when the Internet was born. 
Um, His words were in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, I think, I'm just wondering if we're going to get through these podcasts and ever have an entire podcast where my advanced age doesn't come up as a subject. <laughs> but um, anyway. Well, if they could see you, they'd understand why. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's, there was a great blog post I was reading one day, and this guy raised a question on his blog. And the question was, if you could talk to someone from 1950 and they were teleported in to 2021, what would be the hardest thing to explain to them about our lives now? <laughs> and someone gave what I thought was just the most awesome answer. And they wrote, they said, here's what would be hard to explain. In our pockets, we carry a device from which we can access the accumulated knowledge of all mankind. But we use those devices to watch videos of cats and to get into arguments with random strangers. It's <laughs> true. I mean, so I thought that was a really insightful thing to say because it illustrates, I think, the shallow fallenness of human beings. But I think it also um, it highlights the fact that tools can be used for good or for ill, for constructive things or for self-serving, stupid things. And uh, it really has little to do with the tool at one level. But there's another facet to yes. modern technology that yes. I want to I want to bring out, and that is that some technologies are more uh, dangerous. So I, my six-year-old grandson, he loves to hammer nails, you know, and use his little toolbox. And so I let him get in the garage, and I let him hammer nails, and I give him some guidance and some supervision, but I let him hammer those nails. He'd probably like to shoot my nine millimeter, but I don't let him shoot my nine millimeter. Now my nine millimeter is just a, it's just a tool, but it's a vastly more dangerous tool than, it's not a bad tool, but it's vastly more dangerous to someone who's not equipped or doesn't bring the depth of maturity to the use of it that would, that would um, yield value and and flourishing for the person who's using it. So I think when we talk about technology as tools, one of the things would be helpful to do is distinguish between technologies that are, you know, not in and of themselves uh, volatile and dangerous and technologies that are, in fact, uniquely dangerous. Yeah, the deception is in thinking that a tool is inert until I pick it up and right. use it and then inert again when I put it down. That's not the case. These things are acting upon us, to McLuhan's point, and they're changing us. Tolkien had a concept like this. He was prescient in this way. He talked about the palantir, mm -hmm. the palantir, however you choose to pronounce it. I'm not fluent in Elvish, Shocking. if that's what that was. Yeah, <laughs> um, But he, the, 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 the palantir was basically a seeing stone, is an orb, and they ranged in size from one foot across to the smallest to several feet across the largest of the seeing stones. And they were only wieldable by those with the strongest will because they only projected images, all right? And, and even the very strong-willed were prone to being deceived, all right? So only... This is exactly what we have in our hands. We're walking around. They're not orbs. They're blocks. They're flat plates. But we walk around with palantirs in our pockets. It's interesting. I actually read this morning 
92% of online videos that people consume are watched with the volume off. Wow. They're just images being consumed by viewers. 92% of videos that people watch online are consumed with the volume off. So there's this common perception of the internet that it's sort of this free platform. It's this space where we can express ourselves, we can share ideas with others, and for Christians especially, the desire would be to use that space to share the gospel. What I seem to be hearing from some of you guys, and I think it's worth exploring, is is there a unique danger to the internet that people aren't aware of? Is it really just this free green space we can all frolic through in the digital age or are there other things going on that maybe we as christians need to be more aware of so that maybe we have a a healthier respect for the danger of the internet as opposed to say a hammer let me jump in with just some stats to throw out there we can kind of chew on in this in this question okay so the smartphone the iphone dropped in 2007 the um Samsung dropped in 2010. Smartphone usage skyrocketed in the years between basically 2010 and today. It's continually on the rise. Between 2012 and 2015, depression in boys increased by 21%, in girls by 50%. By 2015, 92% of teens and young adults owned a smartphone, but a smartphone use increased, so did depression. A 2017 study of 8th to 12th graders found that high levels of depressive symptoms increased by 33% between 2010 and 2015. The suicide rate for girls in this age group increased by 65%. Child suicide rates increased by up to 150%. And self-harm by girls ages 10 to 14 nearly tripled. 8th graders who spend over 10 hours on social media per week are 56% more likely to report being unhappy than those who spend less time on social media. Spending more than three hours on social media per day puts adolescents at a higher risk for mental health problems. People talk, people talk about themselves around 30 to 40% of the time in person. On social media, people talk about themselves 80% of the time. People have trouble putting their phones down. A study found that 94% of participants reported feeling troubled when they didn't have their phone. 80% were jealous when someone else used their phone. And 70% expected to feel depressed, panicked, and helpless if their phone went missing or they couldn't find it. Maybe you felt, maybe you felt that before yourself. A study found that 89% of undergraduate students experience phantom vibrations. This is the perception of vibrations from a mobile device that isn't vibrating. People crave receiving notifications so much that they start imagining them. Limiting social media use is the best way to improve mental health. Listen, this is interesting. Using Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, the very technologies used to connect us socially, so-called, online, but limiting use to 10 minutes per day for three weeks led to lower levels of loneliness and depression. So you could go on. There's more statistics like that. But the technology itself and what it claims to do, what it claims to promise us, is actually not delivering on that promise. It's well, an it's idol. Inverse. Yeah, it's the inverse. So. Yeah. This, is, this is what idols do, right? Paul says, you're praying to gods without ears. You think they're promising you something, but they don't have the means to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is exactly what we're seeing with social media. Yeah, I think what started as with an intent, or at least presented as an intent to aid in communication and you know, personal interaction with people has 
become a replacement for it. Yeah, you know, and I, to your yeah, stat, you know, eighty percent right. of the time I'm going to talk about myself on social media, but if I'm face to face with you, you know, that's not the case, and that's why you find people saying things that they would never say in person to somebody on on social media, and yet they think nobody else sees this, but the, everybody sees it. You know, it's it's incredible. Um, but you're right. You know, things like Instagram. Uh, um, you know, my daughter's uh, at least one of them was she likes to look through other people's posts and, and I'm just saying, look, I, I think your value system is, is being formed by what you see in other people. That's not the way God intended for us to think of ourselves. And so, um, yeah, I see it as a, uh, you know, just like Keith's illustration of, of the nine millimeter, this has the potential to do that kind of harm to people. So, well, uh, there, there's a big scandal even recently, just recently, uh, someone, left Facebook and kind of a whistleblower kind of person released a study that uh, has, you know, Facebook's been in possession of for a while that is consistent with all these statistics Ben was just reading, but particularly susceptible to uh, the effects, the negative effects of social media are adolescent females. Mm -hmm. And Facebook's known this for a while, and this kind of gets to something that I think we should we should be wise about. I mean, Jesus actually tells us to be shrewd about things, and that is that um, social media companies are not there for your good. They're there for their good. And you are not their customer. You are their product. Um, you are not there for a meal. You are the meal for their actual customers, and their customers are advertisers who want to manipulate your behavior. And so there is a fundamental disconnect between the welfare of social media users and the, the interests of the social media companies themselves. Social media companies, their interest is in sustaining your attention and your eyeballs. That is their business model. Their business model is to keep you focused on their platform so that they can monetize your attention and manipulate your behavior. That is the fundamental business model of all social media. Uh, all these online services that haven't free that are offered quote for free, they're they're monetizing their users, and that basically puts the what's in the best interest of their users fundamentally at odds with what's in the best interest of the company's business model. Uh, there's a number of I mean, this is this is not a unique insight to me. You can, well, first of all, you can just read their financial reports and understand a bit about what their agenda is. But there are a lot of people who've talked about this. A couple of uh, people uh, that are worth reading in this is anything by uh, a young guy named Tristan Harris. He describes himself as a design ethicist. Um, he wrote a really famous article that appeared on Medium dot com back in 2016 and it's called how technology is hijacking your mind uh he's a former google uh design engineer um and he talks a lot about you know the conscious effort that social media's companies apply i mean they're hiring whole rooms full of cognitive psychologists to design applications specifically to maintain your attention and so he talks about um, 
one way they hijack our minds is to put a slot machine in a billion pockets. And by a slot machine, what he means is that what's known about intermittent rewards and how that affects addictive behavior. And so the whole intermittent reward and reinforcement uh, manipulations that are just baked into social media applications. One of the things I recommend to people is do not install social media apps on your phone. Only interact with social media through a web browser. You can do it on your phone through a web browser, but don't install their applications on your phone. Because if you don't install their applications, their ability to nudge you for attention is reduced dramatically. And so um, it, uh, as a general matter, I think we just need to be wise that, that, that what's in the best interest of human flourishing um, and, and sort of living your own life and controlling your own time is at odds with what the needs and wants of social media are. Years ago, when Twitter first came out, I signed up. And I used it for about a week. I mean, this was like the first month that Twitter was a thing. I used it for about a week, and I, and I kind of realized, man, this is just starting to seem like I've taken on a part-time job. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm too busy for Twitter. So I haven't used, I've never deleted my account because they make that very difficult. But I, I haven't used it in years. So now I get emails about once every two weeks from Twitter. And, and what's interesting about their emails is they'll say, on one hand, they'll say, we miss you. And I'm like, right, I'm sure they do. Uh, you know, um, there, it's sort of an appeal to social solidarity. You know, we miss you. Lately, they've been sending me emails every once, once in a while saying, don't be selfish. <laughs> so what they're saying is I have a moral obligation to to use Twitter and to tweet things for an audience. Um and that's an interesting sort of manipulation in and of itself, and probably there's a whole subject to be had there. Anyway, all that just to say, um, beware. I mean, be shrewd. Understand that your interests and the interests of the social media companies that you patronize don't align. They don't align. It's not a matter of they may not align. They don't align. So, all, so Kyle, to your point, you asked this question a little bit ago. It's a can't it just be a means of sharing the gospel? Isn't there kind of a positive th- use for this? Well, I think, I mean, the answer is obviously yes. But, I mean, the, the someone once said, you know, they had a, a young girl in their youth group who brought her friend to Christ when her grandmother passed away and was hit by a car or something. But you don't then go and start hitting grandmothers with cars so that you can lead young girls to Christ, Right. There, there may be a positive outcome from a harmful thing, but you don't make it a ministry model, right? So I, I think Christians do need to be really savvy. There may be really valid uses for Internet technology, but it's addictive, and we know that it's addictive. And so it's dangerous in the sense that we, we're going to have a hard time finding—humans aren't generally good at setting limits. We're going to have a very hard time finding the limits— of this use. Um, I think maybe if we made a video of cats sharing the gospel, then mm-hmm. that would sort of, that would sure everything would converge mm-hmm. into a, a, you know, a virtuous goodness yeah, the, on the know, internet. The whole internet might just reduce to a singularity at that yeah, point, and that I would be the that, end of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> we could call it felangelism. 
kind of like evangelism. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, the the popular documentary. I don't know if Tristan is the one who's on it, but um, the social dilemma that came out he's on Netflix. On, he's on the social. He's one of the guys yeah. on the social dilemma. It's not a perfect documentary, but it did open up sort of the can of worms of the eyes looking back at us from our computer screens for a mm-hmm. lot of families, for a lot of people I know. Um, interestingly enough, when I tried to look up stuff about it on social media, social media platforms didn't have very much good to say about it, which to me was validating of their <laughs> argument. Um, but they want to talk a lot about in that about what is this doing that's contra to human flourishing or that's against what it means to be human. Um, one of the things I've seen periodically is the – finding that social media is actually making uh, the next generation of kids less empathetic, that they actually don't develop empathy by looking at a screen because you need a, a, a face, a human face to interact with for that to happen. Um, and so we're literally breeding, um, to maybe put in crass terms, we're sort of like breeding a generation of sociopaths, people who have less empathy than the generation before them just by nature of how we allowed them to grow up. It's actually not hyperbole to say that that's what that's what we're finding it's what studies are suggesting is we are there is a new generation of sociopaths people who were raised on digital technology and and if you pair that with some of the things you've been talking about keith that were we're then putting that less empathetic group of people on platforms where all of their views all of their values all of their feedback is being either liked or by absence disliked by their peers we're basically putting them in the position to where they don't know how to relate to other human beings and they're allowing platforms to basically control through dopamine response what is good thinking, what is bad thinking, what is right feeling, what is wrong feeling. Right. And that is – I mean that's like a recipe for social disaster. So add to, the, add to that what you just said, this other phenomenon. There's a book by a guy named Nicholas Carr. Um, the book is called The Shallows. No, it's not about a shark. Attack. It's about what the well, internet. It might be about a shark attack. Just <laughs> yeah, it's a metaphor. The, the shark is a <laughs> metaphor in this case, right? Um, but it's about what the internet is doing to our brains, and what the, the argument of the book introduces a concept that would have been completely unfamiliar to Marshall McLuhan with his idea that we shape our tools and then thereafter they shape us. But what he discovered, what Nicholas Carr didn't discover this. What he reports on in the book is the is the topic of. Um, neuroplasticity. So don't let that term scare you away. Um, it's a, I, it's an idea that's very accessible to all of us. It's simply the idea that our brains have the ability to reshape themselves with, with use. So anything that we do with repetition ends up having a cognitive effect not only on our minds, but a shaping effect on the gray matter of our brains. Anytime we have an idea and then act on that idea, we create something called a neuropathway, all right? Reading is uh, is an act, for instance, is a technology. Books are a form of technology, believe it or not. Reading is a technology that requires prolonged concentration in a singular direction. And so the neuropathways that are created from the practice of reading are deep and entrenched in the mind. It creates memory, it creates learning, and it creates the ability to connect dots across multiple um, disciplines. And time. And time. So it enhances collective memory, not just individual memory, but collective memory, communal memory. It's what reading does. The internet, meanwhile, is a technology of distraction, of constant distraction. 
And it, it, it creates an atmosphere of deliberate forgetfulness. You don't have to remember anything. In fact, because of the distractions that are available on the internet, video display technology has shown that comprehension and retention plummets. Any kind of learning you're doing or reading you're doing on a screen, like if your Bible reading, for instance, is primarily done on a screen, the comprehension and your retention of what you're reading is plummeting. But what's also happening is those neural pathways are becoming increasingly more shallow. And what that means is without deep neural pathways, your brain is literally being reshaped where you are much less capable and much less likely of thinking well, thinking deeply, and thinking in any prolonged direction about anything that matters, anything that might require deep thought. Let's think, as Christians, aren't there things that we ought to be thinking well, prolonged, and deeply about? Aren't there things got? Wouldn't that sort of sound like the word meditate? I meditate on your words day and night. The internet technology that we've all become addicted to is actually warring against a Christian, a human being's ability to think and remember well. So, for instance, neuroplasticity works in two directions. It can work for you or it can work against you. Here's the good news. Paul was way ahead of his time, the the Apostle Paul, when he said, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Okay? So neuroplasticity was something the Spirit knew about long before uh, neuroscience was a thing, right? Um, But here's here's the bad news. Really good habits can be forgotten. A person with a skill who then ends up spending a lot of time on social media, doing all kinds of uh, online activities, a person whose life and mind space is devoted to the internet, they will actually lose skills and abilities and memories and connections that they once had in their brain. Their brains will reshape themselves. So there's, there is huge corporate loss, communal loss going on today. So let me, one last thing on this topic of forgetfulness. Within the last generation, we have, um, and, and, and technology is partly to blame for this, but humans create technology, so we're all to blame, right? We Think of all the things that we've lost as a society in terms of our communal memory. We, we, we did a thing on work. We did a podcast on work um, recently. There are, there are things that we no longer pass down, skills, knowledge, wisdom, values that we no longer pass on to the next generation because of the way that we work, uh, because of the way we don't work anymore. We are, we are, this, this generation, this current time has become an age of forgetfulness, an age of shallow thinking. And I think that Christians Just like in the so-called Dark Ages, it was the monks who collected all these books and sort of preserved the cultural heritage of good thinking, right, and memory. It, It ought to be Christians who look with discerning eyes on what's happening in the world around us, reject certain habits and lifestyles, and collect to ourselves the cumulative memory of Western civilization that is on the brink of extinction. And... That is nothing to say uh, about just the dangers of other people on the internet. So we've even gotten to the idea that we're letting you know, 10, 11, 12-year-olds have smartphones 
And most of the time, people are not paying attention to who they're talking to, what they're doing, where they're going. Um, and if you're increasing the amount or rather decreasing the amount that they're thinking, if you're reducing not only their empathy but also their ability to think well, and then you're throwing them out into places that are not moderated, that are not being controlled, that have freedom of access for people all over the world, that's just a rest. I mean it's basically like if you threw Little Red Riding Hood into a forest full of a billion wolves and said, make it to grandma's house, okay. <laughs> like – and then we're adding to that the idea that we're also distracting her constantly, right? Um, and I think it's you know it's even more harrowing when you think about the special effect that these things have on young teenage girls. Um, I think we are not thinking well enough at all about is there any time when certain groups of people should be on the internet? Is there any time when groups of people should be forbidden from those spaces in the same way that we don't allow – 13-year-olds to drive cars on the highway. Um, and cars have a lot more basic utility than uh, Facebook does. Um, but even those things that are sort of essential to the way we do business, we sort of say, hey, you've got to reach a level of maturity before you even touch this. Hmm. Um, we don't have those same barriers all the time with the internet. It hasn't been here long enough for us to, we're just now, it's been here just long enough for us to start looking at longitudinal studies you know, studies that have taken place over a long enough period of time for us to understand the impact of this technology on individuals and on society. We know it has a huge impact on personal productivity. And so as mm. Christians, at one level, we don't, you know, we're not worried too much about um, business economics per se, um, except for its utility and human flourishing. But I think the, particularly the productivity metric is instructive because it it's an artifact of um, not just efficiency but focus. And I think if you think about how people's lives have been occupied, even television, you know, which is sort of a just a, in my view, I'm, I'm not a TV fan. It's just sort of a brain-draining waste uh, land, you know. Um, but even TV, the the thing about TV was you had to go to it to be occupied by it. You had to choose it. Uh, with phones, you're, you know, you're, your attention and time spent is being chosen for you. And to a certain extent, unless you're just excessively strong-willed and indifferent to the the siren call of your various social media accounts. And so what that means is instead of doing other things, you're focusing, your your very limited number of hours in the day are being siphoned away for, um, for purposes that don't involve the cultivation of interest outside of yourself. Yeah, it's, I've, when we ever we created the smartwatch, everybody got all excited about it because they're like, oh, this is a way we don't have to take our phones out of our pockets. Right. And what was funny to me about that is no one allows their person, they're sitting across from the table, you know, you're eating and you're having a conversation. If someone does and looks at their watch, that's rude because we know one of two things going on. Either you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> Uh, because I'm boring or you know insulted you or whatever, or you have something else very far away that you'd rather be doing. 
And when we talk about our phones, our phones are the constant choice. Every time we pick up a phone, we're constantly choosing to choose the far over the near. To say the person in front of me is less important than what I have to see on my phone that could be coming from places all over the world. I would rather be discussing uh, cat videos on my video rather than doing the work that's right here in front of me. Well, and I think I, I definitely think that's part of it. The other part of it is really the formation of interests. So through really hard experience, I've come to believe that what a person knows is only partially determinative of what they do. What that person loves hmm. and is drawn, you know, is drawn to really determines how a person lives their life. And I think the cultivation of interests that are not self-centered is a really vital aspect to someone being successful, even on the world's own terms, economically successful, even on the world's own terms. You can watch some old TV shows. There's an old TV series from the early 60s and maybe late 50s called My Three Sons. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. Fred McMurray. Uh, But what's interesting about that show, it's like a little window into a time warp because those boys on that show were very occupied with pursuits outside of themselves. They were rewiring stereos and rebuilding engines. Building car engines in the garage. Building things. I mean, they... They were they were very actively pursuing productive occupations, and there now, are there are boys today who yeah pursue those things. So it's not like I, it's a complete dearth of yeah for sure of good well, kids. But, absolutely, but we're, there there are things now that war against a yes, boy's and, inclination and, to do that. And technology is something that that actually wars against. Right. If if a kid wants to be involved in technology, they'd they'd be better off learning to write software than sitting on Instagram, right, right or Facebook. Uh, I think there are, kids need to be encouraged to to develop interests that don't involve their um, self-absorption. They need to develop interest in things for their own sake, for the, for the thing's sake, because there are subjects worth pursuing. There's excellence worth uh, achieving. In areas outside of our own, and and when we figure self, that right, congratulations, eighty percent of the thing a person talks about on social media is his or herself. Um, it, you're not inclined when it's in, when it's encouraging addiction to pursue interests that don't point at you. So I think this is a great moment to look at how do we create good boundaries, right? So we've sort of said. There are some opportunities here to do good things perhaps on the internet, but there are a lot of dangers most people don't seem to be taking as seriously as they probably should, probably ourselves included at times. And so how do we create good boundaries, whether that's boundaries personally? So you as a person, what are the boundaries you would suggest for how you interact with this monolithic thing called the internet? Um, And then maybe some family advice, you know, how do we allow our families to have a healthier interaction with the web? I was in a a meeting of parents. This is way back in the day at a youth camp. This is probably around 2007, sometime between 2007 and 10. The iPhones were out. People were talking about using social media, um, you know, for youth groups and things. And there were some alarm bells already in some corners. But by and large, what I discovered is that 
people weren't really interested, they weren't even willing to ask whether or not this was a technology that should be used. It was taken for granted that we would be using this technology. And that bothered me. I, it was it was like um, Jeff Goldblum's character from Jurassic Park, the chaos theorist. He yeah. sits in this room full of scientists and businessmen, and and he's it's his turn to speak. And he says, "You guys were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you never stopped to ask whether or not you should." And I think that a lot of parents feel like it's just not allowed to ask whether they should. And so for me, I think it would be to have courage enough as a father or as a mother or a grandparent to ask the question whether or not your kids should have it. They will come to you begging for a phone as early as eight years old, and your job is not to appease, but to protect and provide and guide. So I, I, think, I think parents having the courage to ask whether or not they should and answer that question with a no, not yet. You know. So, so when the iPhone first came out you know of course everybody's going crazy over it and uh i guess a year or two passed and so our oldest daughter was getting of the age and so she's christmas time rolled around and you know that's the number one thing on her list is can i have an iphone and we uh didn't think it was the best idea at the time (laughs) i mean but all our friends had it and so that that pressure you know you come home from school and everybody around your class has an iphone um I remember that year we wound up getting her an iPod Touch and and a track phone. <laughs> so it's not an iPhone, but it, it helped us keep some boundaries in place because you don't have free access to do it as you will. And uh, anyway, you have to compete against the what your kid is, is seeing amongst their peers all around them and help them understand that we don't operate based on what everybody else is doing. You know, we've got a responsibility for you. And uh, But now all my girls you know, they're older, they have iPhones. So my, my task now is to educate, you know, the best I can as far as uh, the things that I'm seeing, the dangers that come to mind, and just uh, be careful about allowing your perception of self and how you value self be formed by what's out there. I mean, uh, you know, my youngest is in college now, and uh it's up to her to take on that responsibility, but as a dad, I'm trying to help her think well about what she has. It's like defensive driving. You know, we have laws in the land that limit the age at which a person can have a car, drive a car, do those kinds of things. But it, 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 when you turn at 16, you don't just get a car. Right. Yeah. Right. You you get trained. You get educated. So I like what Van said about educating kids. You know, when I remember when I was doing my defensive driving, I had to. They showed us these videos. They called these they were VHSs back when I was doing um, driver's ed. They still were showing VHS videos, but it was a VHS video called Red Asphalt. So you can only imagine what the content of this video was. Red Asphalt was a collection of serious car crashes with all of the violent aftermath showed on screen. And basically it left all the kids going, I don't think I want to drive. <laughs> and if I am going to drive, I'm jolly well going to obey the traffic laws and wear my seatbelt, right? So I, I think that there's something there for parents as well. Don't just say, no, you can't have this until you're 34, which is probably a pretty good age for having a smartphone. Um, but but here's the consequences. Here are the dangers. Here are the pitfalls. 
here, here are some boundaries you need to learn to live within if you're going to use this tool. That's the kind of education parents can be thinking about. I had a friend that he he had this ability to reduce complex things down into kind of pithy, funny little sayings. So he would say, if you've got little kids, his parenting philosophy was yank and spank. <laughs> yank them away from stuff that was going to hurt them and spank them when they did something wrong. You know? So he would say it was yank and spank. But one of the, he said his philosophy for raising teenagers was keep them busy and no motorcycles. <laughs> just kind of distilled it down. But this business, you know, there's some wisdom to this whole idea of keeping them busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think kids need more occupation. And I'm not talking about the kind of organized, manic, sort of scheduled to the hilt, mm-hmm. you know, you know, going from, you know, event sport to event to, yeah. event to lessons to, you know, whenever they're not in school. I'm really talking about um, cultivating an environment where kids have things to do that are either contributory to the needs of the family or that are, um, that are, um, that draw the child into something outside of himself in terms of cultivating interests and skills. I think we should be actively helping children develop skills in areas that are useful, that are life skills and contribute to their own flourishing to say nothing of someone else's. And so I think occupying children with uh, less downtime where they're not just laying around between school and, and dinner with, without sufficient things to do is, uh, is a really healthy uh, focus. But it requires some, it, it, it requires some active parenting. It, it can't be passive, you know. Okay. And I think to, to the points y'all have made, there's not, it's not just like a faucet, you turn it on, you turn it off. Um, there, it's not just avoid these things altogether or dive headlong into the deep end. Um, in a lot of ways, I think we can train youth, um, even younger kids who are dealing with the internet in the same way we teach them to navigate like a city, right? You tell them, don't be at foolish places at foolish times with foolish people, right? So, you know, on the internet, it's don't be on your phone at dark hours of the night where nobody knows that you're on it and nothing good happens, you know, after certain times of the day um, because our ability to make good choices sort <laughs> of deteriorates as we get more tired and as less eyes are watching us, right? Or uh, don't go to foolish places. You know, I tell people all the time to be aware of the types of applications, the types of platforms that people are on. Um, anytime there's anonymity where you can't hold people accountable to what they've said or what they've done or what they've showed on a video, avoid those places. Those are places designed for people to do things they shouldn't. Um, Those are, you know, anonymous messaging, open video chatting, you know, Snapchat. If I could get every family all over the world to get rid of one application that everyone seems to think is okay, I say it's Snapchat. It's basically an anonymous video platform designed for people to send things they shouldn't hey, to Hey, here's a, here's a funny stat about Snapchat. If a person sat down to watch all of the videos posted to Snapchat on a single day, so if you sat down to watch every single video that was posted to Snapchat just on one day, it would take you 158 years to watch those videos. Yeah. And a lot of those, those platforms That's pretend ridiculous. that they can monitor those things, and it's a lie. Right. They put reporting on there as a way to make us feel better about ourselves, like that somebody might be controlling it, and it's a lie. And then the third, obviously, being uh, foolish people. 
we need to be very aware about the types of people we're dealing with on the that we're talking to on the internet that our kids are talking to on the internet um places where you can hide your identity why would you talk to those people if they're not willing to make themselves known you know that's a that's like a red flag of don't go there don't talk to them they're up to no good um so just some of those basic skills can be applied to things like the internet and avoid a world of hurt i think parents also to find like-minded parents with you, you know, mm-hmm. to not, cause you can do all these things for your kids, but if more parents got together and had conversations, maybe agreed together that they're not going to give their kids, uh, cell phones or smartphones until a certain age so that there was some solidarity and there wasn't any of this, you know, well, Timmy's parents let him have, right. you know, cell phones. And when he was three and we can, you know, that kind of solidarity, there's strength in numbers. It's good for the kids. It's good for the parents. You're not alone making that decision. Well, and know. it keeps you from having to say, well, Timmy's parents are knuckleheads to your kids. Right. You know, that, that always <laughs> sort of drives be. a wedge and yeah. makes awkward social situations. Yeah. My <laughs> parents had a really great defense against the whole, well, Jimmy's parents let him argument. You know, we always, when phones first came out, this is before smartphones, just cell phones, my uh, brothers and I would always ask, hey, can I have? And my parents are always like, no, not yet. No, not yet. And our argument was always, well, everybody has them. And my parents just sort of would smile and say, then you always have access to one if you need one. <laughs> Blast! <laughs> Foil! <laughs> so uh, maybe looking to uh, close the conversation out with some last thoughts. What is one thing you would like uh, the families and members of Lake Ridge to sort of walk away with when it comes to how to handle the reality of the internet in the world we face today? Just say no. Remember that old drug campaign from the 80s and 90s, just say no? I think, I mean, not not no in totality, right? Um, I'd be hard for me to pay my bills if the internet didn't exist, you know. Um, we, we, we give to things through the internet. There's, there's, there's good avenues of engaging with the culture through the internet. But we need to learn what to say no to. There actually are things worth saying no to. I've been off social media, <laughs> LinkedIn only accepted. Um, I've been off social media for about five years now, six years. And man, I'm all the better for it. I, I've, I've read more books, um, had better conversations, you know, I remember getting off social media and I got my mind back. You know, I wasn't, my, my kids, my experiences I had with my family weren't for the consumption of strangers. They were just my own. It sort of returned the sacredness of my family life to me. There's so many benefits from, from just saying no to social media. Um, yeah, there's a loss. You're not going to get to keep up with that high school friend you had 30 years ago who you probably wouldn't have kept up with anyway. But, but there are so many things to gain as well. So just learn to actually say no to some things. I would say um, if you're living your life in such a way that you're calculating your actions according to how they're going to come across on social media, then your life has been hijacked. Mm-hmm. If, if, you're, if you're making life choices based on the illusion that you're somehow uh, 
the star in your own, um, you know, real life TV show, uh, then then you your your life's been hijacked, and so just be aware that life is to be lived not for the benefit of social media companies, but for the benefit of human beings. And for the glory of and God. I I also think that um, treat social media use on the part of your kids like the use of a loaded weapon. I'm not saying don't ever let them use social media, but I'm saying it's unwise to let them use social media without supervision and boundaries. Um, you know, unaccountability, there's, there's really no argument to be made for children to have unaccountable use. Um, and by children, I mean anyone under, you know, college age to have, I mean, it's dangerous even for college kids, but super dangerous. But as parents, uh, just letting your kids have use of that is like letting them sit in their bedroom and play with a loaded nine millimeter handgun. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And that doesn't mean there's no good use for it ever, but it means that uh, it needs to be closely protected and uh, and shepherded uh, in a very intentional way. Uh, but I, I mean, I like Ben's point. I've, I've stopped posting directly on Facebook. I have, I do some blogging. I have my own blog site where I write about things that interest me or things that make me laugh. But I don't actually get on Facebook and post directly there anymore. Um, I don't, I'm at the point where I mean, I, I'm a, I have a LinkedIn account, but I don't really post there to speak of. I, I just sort of have business connections. And, uh, and you still know what's there. going on in the world? Yeah, I still know somehow <laughs> what's going on in the it's world. Amazing. Now, that's a different question whether I care yeah. what's going on in the world, but uh, I do know what it is. Yeah, so I, I can honestly say I've, I've never been addicted to social media. <laughs> I do have a Facebook account. Uh, in fact, my wife's uh, work now uh, flows mainly through Facebook. And, uh, and so I do a few posts, but uh, I'm in no way trapped uh, by it. Um, so I'm thankful for that. It's, it's nothing that has a hold in my brain, you know, so... I think I have a MySpace account out there somewhere that hmm. might still be open, <laughs> if that even exists. I'm but. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go way out on a limb and suggest it probably doesn't have very many visits. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, it's it's to some of the things we said today. It, it, it's as far as our children are concerned, and just reminding ourselves, it's it can be a helpful tool, but it also poses a lot of danger if you are not guarded and you don't approach these things remembering that you're accountable to the Lord and um, informed by Scripture as to how you understand what's in front of you and see it for what it is. I think I, the thing I would say as a dad uh, and a parent, um, don't be afraid to have those conversations with your children over uh, why and helping equip and educate them on how they need to uh, deal with these things. You're going to get some pushback at the start. <laughs> Dad, I know, you know, you've said this a million times, but don't be afraid to keep the conversation going and wade through the pushback and trust that the Lord will help the, the, the sincerity and the, and the um, 
care that you're trying to communicate to your children, it will sink in and, uh, and trust that the Spirit would help them adopt that, that same kind of concern that you have uh, for themselves. And so uh, I say that because I've, I've been through that and still revisit those conversations just because I know the craziness that's out there and um, it, it bothers me, it concerns me. Psalm 101, verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. So I think the question we always have to ask, anytime something's before our eyes, anything begging for our attention, is this this worthy of what God has called me to be? And if it's not, get rid of it. Jesus teaches us that two of the greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with all our minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Meanwhile, we now know that the pervasive influence of internet and social media technology hinders memory and deep thinking and corrupts human empathy. Marshall McLuhan was right. We shape our tools and thereafter they shape us. To love God and neighbor well then, we have to be discerning about our tools, what tools we use, how we use them, and whether or not we use them at all. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can contact us by email at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.